invite you to open your Bibles again to John chapter 3. You may recall in the, during the fall we began a, our study of this gospel uh, written by the apostle who refers to himself as the one whom Jesus loved. As, uh, his purpose in writing this is that those who would read, that really all people would come to believe in Christ Jesus. And as uh, we return to it, we return at a, I think, a, a particularly good point. Uh, because in one sense it's a very simple uh, passage that is before us and at the same time it is one that is a good orientation for us as we begin a brand new year. Our text this morning will begin uh, John 3 verse 1. We'll be reading through verse 15 this morning. Before we come to his word, let's go to our God in prayer that he would speak to us as we consider his word this morning. Father, we do come with thanksgiving that you have made this day and we can rejoice in it because we can rejoice in you as we are reminded as far as, as much as it may, blow our minds that you rejoice in us. You have made us a treasured possession. You have purchased us by the blood of Christ. And you have made us your own children. And you have promised to be at work in us begun it, you will continue what you begin, you will see through it. As we come and offer you praise that you're worthy to receive, we also come and honor you by listening for your voice, for your instruction, how it both encourages and corrects us in our lives. We pray that by your Spirit you would give us ears to hear and hearts to receive, minds to comprehend the glorious truth have revealed for us the words we consider today. This is part of the way that you shape us. It's part of the way that we can honor you by not only hearing your word, but becoming doers of it. We are not only those who learn it, but we are those who are shaped by it. Bless us, Lord. Be at work as we consider your word now. Glory honor the name of Christ Jesus, the word in Christ. John 3, verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of spirit, He cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I have said uh, to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, 
Are you a teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen. But you do not receive our testimony. If I had told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpents in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. The Word of God, given for our blessing and the glory of our God. Scripture is quite clear. Salvation is found through believing in Jesus Christ. Try to continue reading just a little bit further to what is probably the best known verse in all of the scripture, we would be reaffirmed in that reality. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever shall believe shall not perish but have eternal life. And so we're told salvation comes. Peter, as he's speaking at Pentecost to the great crowd, has declared there is no other name in heaven or on earth we are given by which we may be saved. So scripture is quite clear that salvation comes by believing in Jesus Christ and the great promise of God that we'll see in a few chapters later that Jesus also gives to us in John chapter 14 is Jesus says that whoever believes in me will also do works that I do and greater works than the works that Jesus himself has done. So there is a tremendous promise that goes along with the salvation that comes through believing in Jesus Christ. Not only do we have the eternal life, but there's the promise of the endowment of power, of effectiveness that accompanies all who have that belief. Jesus said those who do, those who follow him, those who belong to him, will do things even greater than what he is recorded as having done on this earth. With the simplicity of how eternal life is coming. And the significance of the promise that's attached to that, that those who are followers of Jesus Christ will do even greater things than Jesus Christ, it becomes an all the more perplexing question. Why then does the church in America not have greater influence on our culture? I mean, Gallup poll recently came out and said that 75.2% of Americans claim to have to be Christians. Now that's down from a few years ago when it was 80%, but still, more than three quarters of the people in our country claim to have a faith of some sort in Jesus Christ, and yet at the same time, the church in America has never had less impact than it has today. This comes at a time where we have more dynamic ministries, greater opportunities than any time in the history of the world. More resources at our disposal. And yet, not only are we having less influence, but we see that the numbers of those who believe has dropped just in a few years from 80% to 75%. 
It is an amazing thing to consider. How, how can 75% of the people, the vast majority of the people, be so impotent when it comes to influencing and shaping the culture? Now, there's no shortage of answers for this. Probably the most compelling comes from those who look at the church and look at the world and considering the different makeups of the people, the, the social pathologies of those who profess faith in Christ and the social pathologies of the people who are in the world around, recognize that there is virtually no difference. We have to ask ourselves at what point did the church that at one time was distinct from the world and influencing institution, powered by the promise of Christ and the gospel that was proclaimed, becomes simply a, a mirror of the world that is around us, trying to simply find its place, begging for people to participate, seeing themselves as the beneficiaries of consumers rather than the power to bless as a covenant people. I think even simpler than that, but certainly in line with it, is probably the fact that, by and large, the church in the West, in our culture, has neglected the simple foundational truths that are recorded in this passage that we are considering this morning. The context of the passage is a conversation that took place between Jesus and a man named Nicodemus. What we know about Nicodemus is that he was a Pharisee and that he was a Sadducee. Those two words tell us something about him. As a Pharisee, he was one who was meticulous in his doctrines and understanding of God, studious in the Word of God, had a high view of the Word of God, and as a result of those views, he also would have been meticulous with the way he lived his life, to live a life that was considered above reproach, that he would do nothing that would in any way violate the standards of God, one who was hungry. We seem to have indication from this man, too, that of the Pharisees, he was one that was least lesser, hard-hearted. He actually was continuing to learn and to grow and to seek out what God was doing, so he didn't think that he had all of the answers. But endowed with many of the answers, he continued to grow more. And then as a Sadducee, we recognize that not only was he one who was a meticulous religious person and leader, but he had cultural power as well. The Sadducees were the ones that were, they'd been the ones that you'd see interviewed on the uh, Fox News or CNN. They'd be called out for their opinion on any issue that of the day. They're the ones that are invited to pray at inaugurations or any other kind of public event. They're the ones that somehow have the ear of the leaders of the culture. Although many of the Sadducees themselves had no real faith, they were a pretense of philosophical religion. But in this case, and as in a few others, what we see is that one who was passionate about God with a high view of God's word and given himself to the glory of God also had risen to this stature. So Nicodemus was in many ways a quite impressive man. 
Now, a lot of people make, a lo- uh, make much of the fact that the passage records that he came by night, as if somehow this suggests that he was somehow a coward. And while many commentators believe that there was some truth to that, that he came by night, John's recording he came by night because he didn't want people to know that he was speaking with Jesus. I'm, I'm not sure that I would fully embrace that. One of the reasons is we, we see no evidence in any way that Nicodemus was a fearful man. We see no evidence that Jesus would correct him for that. You would think that if he was coming hiding, that would be one of the things that Jesus would point out to him, although that's pure uh, speculation. We also know that by what he says in this passage, in verse 2, when he says, look, we know that you are a man, a teacher from God, and you've performed miracles. And, and the plural we suggests that he's there representing not just himself, but other people as well. So it seems likely that there were a group of people, whether they were Pharisees, which is less likely, or, or I mean Sadducees, which is unlikely Sadducees, but Pharisees would be more likely because they're the ones hungering to see what God is doing. They were already aware that he was going. In fact, it seems that he may have been commissioned to go and to speak with Jesus on their behalf. Therefore, it would seem to negate the whole idea of secrecy if people had sent him. As we look at this man and consider the context of the conversation, I I think that it's appropriate that we would see a man who is is hungry, a man who is going to share what he understands. And the whole idea that he comes at night may be, as theologian D.A. Carson says, simply just one of John's literary motifs. John uses the whole light and darkness theme regularly throughout this gospel. So to talk about this man coming at night may be simply saying he came in out of the darkness to the light. I'm not sure that it really matters whether or not we see Nicodemus as a coward or as a strong leader who was passionate and came at a time that he was able to um, to speak with Jesus. But what we do know is his purpose of coming was to try to understand what Jesus was saying, what he was teaching, and what he was saying about himself whether Jesus was teaching some new doctrines that they needed to understand and whether Jesus was presenting himself as a prophet or even as the Messiah. And then John records the conversation, which again strikes me as rather humorous. If the whole point of Nicodemus was coming at night so that nobody knew that he was going to talk with Jesus, now the whole world for all eternity knows of that conversation and everything that took place in it. get through that conversation, Jesus gives us some fundamental truths that we need to be reminded of that should shape not only our view of Jesus, but the way that we live our lives and relate to Christ as well. And as we look at this passage, I want to look at it looking at two phrases that give us a good outline of what Jesus is teaching. Both of those phrases are marked by the word must. There are two musts, two major musts that Jesus records in this passage first of which is you must be born again. We see Jesus introducing that whole concept in verse uh, 3. Nicodemus has come offering his 
flowery words. Look, we know that you're a teacher that's come from God. And reflecting Jewish belief, the fact that he had been performing miracles, which Jewish belief would say validates the fact that the presence of God was with him. Nicodemus is, is approaching, trying to learn. It's interesting that Jesus just kind of cuts him off. He doesn't even answer a question because there is no question that has been asked at this point, but Jesus is answering his thoughts rather than the prepared statements and, and list of questions that Nicodemus may have had. And as he's answering the question, anticipating the questions that are to come, he just declares flat out, that you must be born again. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And it's an interesting phrase because as I, I look at what Jesus is saying here, there are several things that we glean even from that simple statement. The first of which is that there is a priority that is above the life that we live every day. Jesus seems to assume seeing the kingdom of God is the highest priority for anybody who wants to follow God. Nicodemus is there with specific questions, wanting to understand who Jesus is saying he is, wanting to understand what Jesus is teaching, and yet and, and with Nicodemus wanting to apply that to his own life, and Jesus anticipates this and saying, you know what, unless you're born again, you can't even see the kingdom of God. Now, part of that is a confrontation of Nicodemus and of all the Pharisees and all the Pharisee type of people that are in the world who think that they already are experiencing the kingdom of God simply because they're behaving in a certain way or believing certain truths. Jesus is saying to him, no, unless you are born again, or born from above, the Greek word uh, there uh, it actually means both again and from above. Jesus is saying, unless that happens, you can't even see the kingdom of God. There's an anticipation. He seems to assume that that's what people want. That, that would be the priority. Nicodemus may not be aware that there is another dimension, but he's assuming that if Nicodemus was aware of that, that would be the very thing that he would want. So when Nicodemus had come to talk about miracles and to the validation, Jesus kind of looks past those things and then starts talking about the kingdom of, of God, the kingdom of heaven. This strikes at not only Nicodemus, but for many of us as well. Because like Nicodemus, many of us come to Jesus with questions about how we might live our lives better and how this life might be more fruitful, more enjoyable, or even how in this life we may be able to grow and to honor God more specifically. But Nicodemus, as many of us, his motive seemed to be to learn from Jesus in order to put Jesus into his already instructed religious practices and daily life. In other words, if I can get these answers, I can fit them into my my worldview construct already. I can fit Jesus into what I already believe, and that will strengthen or, or grow what I already have. 
Because Nicodemus, like many of us, was so focused on having the best life now. Jesus was saying, you don't understand. It's not a matter of fitting me into your agenda and fitting me and my teachings into the way you live your life. It's about you fitting into my kingdom. It's finding your place in the way that God has designed the world. It's not squeezing me in. It's finding you and following my rhythm and the rhythm of the kingdom of God. Jesus, by his very opening statement, is reminding us that there is a priority more than our lives, but our lives fit into something much bigger, and that priority is the kingdom of God itself. Jesus said, and the less someone is born again, born from above, not only do we not enter, we can't even see it. Strong words which are reminding us that if you can't even see it, then you're further from it than what you might think. The word that he uses for cannot bear, cannot see, has as its root the same word we get from the word dynamite. Saying, you don't have the power. It's not that you're not allowed. You don't have the ability. You don't have the power to see the kingdom of God. Unless God is at work. With this, Jesus also reminds us that, that the spiritual regeneration that he's talking about, again, to be born again, it is the, the word regeneration, to generate. What Jesus is talking about in this spiritual regeneration is not the same thing as a personal reformation. It's not the same as committing ourselves to change his word. You don't have the ability, you don't have the, the power to fix your own brokenness. And yet, even though we understand that, we still try. Some of us try to apprehend God using our intellect philosophically. We go to God with our questions, and it's not that we shouldn't, but we go to God with the questions, but if he'll give us just the answer, then we can figure this whole thing out. God, why is there evil in this world? Why do awful things happen to good people? If you are sovereign, then why are there tragedies and why are there natural disasters in this world when you are good and you have the power to control all things? Why do these things happen? We think that if we have a significant number of our questions answered, we'll be able to understand God and then we'll be able to live out our lives in peace, fitting God in to the way we view the world and the way that we live. Some of us do this behavioral. work hard to be good people and figuring that if we do good things and we'll be able to figure out this God thing. The more good things that I do, then the more likely God is to let go and let me see what it is that he wants. Some of us do it theologically. I can just learn the doctrines. Then I'll have God figure it out. The interesting thing is that Nicodemus had all of these things. He was well-educated. He was theological as a, as a Pharisee. He had his doctrine as well as a, a life that was uh, lived out with a high moral code. And all of them are, are very good things. But 
The problem with all of them is that they are external means of addressing an internal problem. The scripture is very clear that the problem that we have is not just that we do things that we shouldn't and we experience things uh, that are hard and very difficult, but in the book of Ephesians chapter 2, we're told that our problem is, is much bigger than that because the Apostle Paul writes, you were dead in your trespasses and your sins. Our problem is not that we do bad things. The problem is that we're dead. And dead people don't do a whole lot of things in order to fix the problem that they're in. So Jesus' words come back all the more to remind us that, that there's nothing that we are able to do in order to experience this prerequisite to see and to enter into the kingdom of God, but it is, requires a spiritual, supernatural work of God in order for anybody to be able to see the kingdom of God. Now, that whole statement, Nic, uh, Nicodemus expresses the ridiculousness of it, even in, in his conversation here. Jesus said, unless a man is born again, and we don't know whether he was sincere or whether he was being sarcastic, but he said, and so am I supposed to go back into the womb, my mother's womb, and then come on out all over again? And whether he was serious or whether he was sarcastic, it's irrelevant. Jesus says to him in that conversation, essentially, if you look at this, well, even if you could, that wouldn't fix the problem. Because, see, that's of the flesh, that's of the nature. That fixes the external issue, but it doesn't change the nature. To be born again is a radical transformation of the whole of the human person. Jesus is saying, look, you don't need your questions answered. What you need is a whole new life. You need a new heart. You need a new mind. You need a new will. And you don't have the power to make that happen. The only way that can happen is if God is at work. And it doesn't make any sense. But you keep talking about things that are of the flesh, but the only, which is the external that will not fix the internal, but a regeneration of the spirit internally will work its way out into every aspect of your life. And he goes on and he describes this, and he says, look, it doesn't seem to make sense to you. You don't get that because you're thinking about practical ways. He's thinking in the same way that we normally think. How do I fix the problem? How do I be better? Jesus is saying fundamentally what it requires is a work of God supernaturally in the life of and upon the people that God is calling. Jesus goes on and he explains that and says, look, it, it may not make any sense, but you don't have any problem believing in the wind, but you don't see it. You don't even know where it comes from. You don't know where it goes, and you certainly can't control it. And the same thing is true of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will do as he sees fit. And it's the Holy Spirit who sovereignly is at work in the lives of the people order to give them new life through faith in Christ Jesus. You may say, where, where do we see that new life in Christ Jesus? Because that's not part of the first part of this conversation. But it is in the context of what Jesus is teaching. Because the first major must that we see in this passage is you must be born again. You must be born from above. But the second major must that we see that helps us to understand the whole dynamic and the process of spiritual birth is found in verse 14. 
when Jesus says the Son of Man must be lifted up. Now, there's more conversation that takes place before we get there, but it's a significant statement that, that Jesus is, is making there. He's still having this conversation with this man who is curious, who represents us at our best and at our worst, who's now being told there's nothing that he is able to do, that God must act supernaturally upon him, who's still curious about how this birth thing takes place because he begins thinking in the natural and Jesus is removing him from his understanding of biology and then turning him into and turning him to understand spiritually. When he says, Son of Man must be lifted up, there's really a double meaning here in this phrase. Because lifted up, there is a sense, and even the Scripture uses it this way, as to exalt and to praise. And I think that many of us in our contemporary culture, in the evangelical culture, assume that's what's needed. As long as we praise Jesus, then we will have the benefit of the power of Jesus and therefore the influence. But there's another means, and it's actually just a physical lifting up. Nicodemus would have got the context immediately because, one, Jesus gives him a clue. He says, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. Nicodemus would have already, would have immediately, as a teacher of people in Israel, a prominent teacher of the people of Israel, a scholar of the Bible, would have recognized that he was referring to Numbers chapter 21. In Numbers chapter 21, Moses records for us a, a time where the people had rebelled against God. They were grumbling and they continued to go and do whatever they wanted. They were trying to fit God into their schedule to make God on their side rather than putting themselves into the kingdom of God, rather than concerning themselves about the spiritual priorities. As a consequence of their rebellion, God sent poisonous snakes out into the desert. And as people were bitten, as people bitten by poisonous snakes are prone to do, they were dying or getting very, very sick. Moses began to intercede for his people. Lord, are you going to kill them all off? Have mercy. And God offered a remedy. It seems in some senses rather strange, but he told Moses to make an image of a serpent, stick it on a pole, raise the pole up, and then anyone who is bitten as a consequence of their sin can look to that serpent, believing the promise of God that they would be healed even as they are looking at it. while Nicodemus would have understood that, what Jesus was trying to tell him is, see, that that pole represents me. Lifting high the serpent, that is, that was representing me. Just as the serpent has to be lifted up, I must be lifted up. And Jesus was referring to the fact that he must be lifted up on the cross. Now, some may struggle with the whole idea, okay, well, we can see that, but, you know, you're lifting up a serpent, the image of, of all evil. You know, Jesus is certainly not the image of all evil, except that we are, are told in the scriptures. In 2 Corinthians 5, he who knew no sin became sin 
so that we might become the righteousness of God. As Nicodemus was taking this in and Jesus was speaking to him, what essentially Jesus was saying is, look, it's, the issue is, are you, spiritual birth comes not just by believing in some general sense that there is a God and that there is a Messiah. The Messiah came for a specific purpose and has a specific work, and you need to trust in the Messiah and the fullness of what he has come for. And the purpose of the Messiah is to come and to lay down his life and to die and to be lifted up on that cross. And so what Jesus is trying to say to Nicodemus and to all of us is that we experience the new birth by God's grace by giving us a gift of faith, believing in not just Jesus in a general sense, but Jesus Christ who came in the flesh, became sin on our part, and was crucified for us. Which what Jesus is saying, the new birth comes not by believing in God in a general sense, but by believing the gospel, and the promise of God, both in what is fulfilled and what is promised. This is an important aspect, I think, of understanding the impotence in some of our lives, in the church as a culture, because as some theologians, most, perhaps most notably a man named Mike Horton, has talked about that the church, even the conservative evangelical church, is marked by what would be rightly called a Christless Christianity. Now, we understand that in certain aspects of the church, where they, they don't have a high view of the scripture, they, they certain expressions of the church that don't believe that Jesus was was God who came in the flesh, that Jesus rose again from the dead. And so, of course, we would understand that they would simply have a, a moralistic approach to a living life and, and faith. But what Horton's talking about is churches like ours, believers who would be in a church like ours, a, a church that is committed to the Word of God, a church that is committed to the glory of Christ, and yet a church which focuses far more on the do's and the don'ts rather than what Christ has done. So there's Christless Christianity in the ignoring or the rejection of Christ, but there's also a Christless Christianity in the assuming of Christ, never talking about him, never focusing on him, never reminding ourselves or one another that the foundation of Christianity and the essence of Christianity is not about what you and I do, but what God has done sovereignly in the work of Christ to redeem a people, to call them to himself, and then his grace that works by giving us a gift of faith that we can believe in the completed work of Christ. That's the foundation. And Paul tells us in Romans that that's also the power. See, it's interesting. We don't have any power to do what we need to do, but the gospel is the power of salvation for all who are believing it. In other words, it's not just what gives us new life, but it's the power of our lives when we are plugged in and are remembering the gospel of Jesus Christ. So through this conversation, we see Nicodemus speaking the questions representing our culture. Nicodemus would be a fine teaching elder in the PCA. He was being told by our Lord that he needs to be reminded of the gospel power of God and the sovereignty of God. If he's even going to see or then enter the kingdom of God. 
I'm going to wrap up with this because you can consider this and go back and, and look at these passages for yourself. But it's New Year's Day, so we'll wrap up with some applications. I'm going to give you some suggestions for some New Year's resolutions that you can make. I know you were supposed to have made them yesterday. I know that several of you that made them yesterday have already broken some of them today, uh, and so it's already a done deal. Statistics tell us that most people who make any New Year's resolutions by Friday, uh, 25% of them will already be broken. By the end of the month, 80% of them will be broken. But the ones I'm going to suggest to you, the irony is, is if you break them, it only gives you a greater opportunity to keep them. The first one is this, is to ask yourself today and regularly, have I experienced the new birth? Jesus said, you must be born again. Now, some might say, well, I don't, do I feel it? I, you know, how am I supposed to feel? How do I know? There's no birth certificate record on that, and it simply is this. What is your relationship and your attitude to the Son of Man being lifted up? What is your relationship to the cross? Are you trusting in Jesus Christ on the cross? See, the only way that we do that, we are told in the Scripture, is by God's grace to give us faith to believe in what Christ has done. Therefore, if you are hungering for that and recognizing both what Christ has done and your need of that, it's God who's at work. It's the evidence of a new birth that is in We need to ask ourselves that question. Not only have I experienced a new birth, but am I living in now? Which is the second thing that I would encourage you to do, is to remind yourself regularly about the Son of Man who is lifted up. In other words, simply remind yourself of the foundational necessity of the gospel, which is the power that fuels your life. It orients your life to, to, uh, to God, recognize your dependence upon God, and then it enables you to go out and to bear fruit for him. The third thing I would recommend that you do is this. Learn to tell your own story about the process by which God brought you to the new world. Learn to share with others where you were, what brought about your understanding, and what God is doing now. And as you share that, not only does it strengthen you in your faith, is the power to bear fruit in the lives of those with whom we share. And the reason we share is because of the good news that this passage reminds us of is that for those who have experienced the regeneration of the new birth, you are not given a religion. You were given a redeemer who loves you, who gave himself for you, has promised to do a work in you and to complete the work that he begins. It's not that we are helpless and that we do nothing, but we do nothing if we are removed, assuming, or ignoring Christ. God has given us a rebirth, a new beginning in Christ, crucified and resurrected. Reminding yourself on this first day and this year is the strength of our hope.